Gospel of John 10, verse 22 down to the end of the chapter. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. Connected with our scripture reading, we also turn to the Belgian Confession, Article 4 of the Belgian Confession, entitled The Canonical Books. We include in the Holy Scripture the two volumes of the Old and New Testaments. They are canonical books, with which there can be no quarrel at all. In the Church of God, the list is as follows. In the Old Testament, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the two books of Samuel, the two books of Kings, the two books of Chronicles, the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, the book of Job, the Psalms, the three books of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, the five books of the four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, the books of the twelve minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. In the New Testament, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Acts of the Apostles, the 13 letters of Paul to the Romans, the two letters to the Corinthians, to the Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the two letters to the Thessalonians, the two letters to Timothy, to Titus, Philemon, the letter to the Hebrews, the seven letters of the other Apostles, one of James, two of Peter, three of John, one of Jude, and the revelation of the Apostle John. The congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
the word uh, Bible or Biblos in the Greek language very simply means book. And of course, that's how we've always thought of the Bible. Uh, the Bible is a book. From the time we were uh, children, we knew that. And uh, we might even think as we read this list of the books of the Bible that it's rather unnecessary to take up this space in the Belgian Confession to list all those books because, uh, after all, these books are always listed in the index or in the front page of any Bible. It's easy to find and read them there. It's obvious. And, uh, yes, we might say, well, to us, thankfully, that's the case. But it's not something that we should take for granted. If we do, then we fail to see this wonderful gift of the Scriptures for what it is. Uh, last, last time we considered the special care that God has for us uh, by causing His Word to be written. But His special care is uh, displayed not only in causing His Word to be written, but by preserving these writings down through the centuries preserving them among the Jews for hundreds of years, those scrolls that were read in Israel, scrolls that were uh, read in the synagogues where the Jews would worship, carefully copied and carefully uh, preserved. God preserved not only those Old Testament scrolls, but God preserved those New Testament writings, the letters, uh, the epistles, that we're familiar with when they were first written as letters to, to different churches, little booklets, we might say, rather short letters. But God preserved them down through the centuries. And then the accounts of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, which are referred to as, as gospels, not the gospel that is the good news, but gospels that is accounts of the life, the ministry, the words, miracles, and works, and the death and resurrection of our Savior. Uh, the prophecy of John on the Isle of Patmos, sent to the churches of, of Asia Minor. And for years, these uh, New Testament letters, uh, the Gospels, uh, these other writings were kept. They were kept here and there. It had not yet been uh, so gathered as to be as to be bound into one book as we know the Bible. In fact, the only way that they were shared for quite some time with other churches, with other Christians, was by carefully copying out these writings by hand and then passing them from hand to hand. There were no printing presses. There were no uh, computers. There was no email. But God preserved his word. And God led the church from the beginning to receive his word and to gather together these writings and to identify them and recognize them and to confess them as the word of God. Many different kinds of writings by many different uh, human authors over many different, over, over many uh, years, over a very long period of time, uh, making many books, if you will. But these books, these scrolls, became known and confessed as belonging to what we know as one book, and that is the Bible, the complete written revelation that God took such special care 
to provide for his church down through the centuries in which we're able to hold in our hands and possess and put in our pews and read them, read this book. The Bible, the Bible is one God's one rule for his church. And by rule, we do not mean a command. Uh, we mean rather uh, a standard. That's the way uh, the book or the, the word is used in the New Testament. It's a word uh, that is translated with the word canon. And in the Greek, that word refers to a kind of measuring reed or rod, which then serves as a standard. It's used that way in Paul's letter to the Galatians, where in the sixth chapter he says, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation, and as many as walk according to this rule, according to this canon, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Whoever walks according to this, it's a very succinct uh, description of the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. But whoever walks according to that, that standard, peace be upon them. And so canon then refers to uh, this measuring uh, rod, if you will. It's a description of, of the Bible as the, the rule of faith and life for Christians as it has been down through the centuries. And so canonical then means belonging to the list of books, that list of books that make up the authoritative, the, the sufficient and the perfect rule for faith of life and life. At this time of the year, we remember, we commemorate the Protestant Reformation. And uh, you're familiar, I trust, with the what are called the solas of the Reformation. And among the five solas are sola scriptura. We might say scripture alone. Or the Bible alone is the supreme rule, the supreme authority for what we are to believe and how we are to live. And certainly that was foundational uh, for the uh, reformation of the church because the church had placed its tradition, its pronouncements, supposedly alongside of Scripture, but what that meant in practice is that the tradition of the church was elevated above the Scripture. And God, by his grace, brought the church to recognize and confess that God's word alone is the supreme authority for what we are to believe and how we are to live. The Bible is God's one rule for his church. And this rule is clearly defined, as we confess in Article 4, by specific books. And so it's not pointless uh, to list these books. In fact, if we, if we listen to this uh, confession properly, we might hear in this list a glorious triumph over the devil, a clear testimony as to the contents of God's word, as it consists of these different books. And so this confession is a triumph over the devil. It's a triumph over different methods of attack to destroy or to undermine the word of God. And there are many forms in which the devil has tried to destroy or undermine the word of God. Sometimes literally, to burn it, to cut it to pieces, to physically destroy uh, the scriptures, or to deny its authority to deny its truth, or to obscure its uniqueness, to obscure its special identity. 
And that's a very common thing in our day. And a lot of people are really confused, and there are a lot of people that are really ignorant about this subject. You refer to the Bible, and people say, well, there's all different kinds of Bibles, as if they all uh, teach different things, as if there's so many versions of human authors. And often they, they confuse translations with the actual scriptures themselves. Yes, there are many different translations, uh, we might say with varying degrees of, of accuracy, but even among those different translation, translations, by and large, they respect the authority of God's holy word and seek to translate the word carefully and accurately. And they don't differ all that much from one another when it comes down to the real substance and the real essential teaching of uh, the original language. But there's a difference between there being many different translations and being many different Bibles, as if there's all different kinds of versions of the Christian faith. There's nothing settled. It's all confusing. It's all up for grabs. And that shows a kind of ignorance that the devil has uh, perpetuated by his lies. Yes, there are many books that uh, are reported to have a holy kind of status. Books associated with different religions. There's the Quran. Islam has its books. Buddhists and Hindus uh, have their books. Sikhs, they have their books. Mormons have their book. And so, yes, there are a lot of different kinds of so-called holy books. But that doesn't mean that they somehow deserve equal recognition and somehow occupy the same general status when it comes down to religious matters. Yeah, there's a lot of differences. Like, take your pick, almost. And the devil has tried to confuse the absolute uniqueness and the authority and the truth of Scripture by fooling people into thinking that there's, oh, there's many kinds of religious books that all are to be seen as kind of on the same level. And that's confusing. Imagine being told by, uh, by someone or asked by someone to go into the medicine cabinet and, and get my pills. My pills are in the little green bottle there in the medicine cabinet. And you go and open up the medicine cabinet, and it's full of little green bottles with pills. How are you to know which one is the one that is really uh, needed, authentic? Well, that's the way a lot of people would like to present the many different holy books, so to speak, that are available. There's no obvious significance in terms of the differences among them. It's a matter of taste and preference. Take your pick. And the devil has spread a lot of confusion by these kinds of lies. But in our confession, we hear a kind of defeat. We triumph over Satan's lies by uh, spelling out very clearly the contents of Holy Scripture in terms of the specific books that make up this one book. And this defeat of Satan really goes back to the early church. From the early years of the Christian church, the church fathers, uh, they, they quoted the epistles of Paul as having authority. From the first centuries of the church, there were lists of the books of Scripture. Athanasius listed the books of Scripture, uh, the New Testament books that we uh, recognize today. Or think of the Belgic Confession. It's almost 500 years old. Isn't that significant? In a conversation with somebody that says, well, we don't know what the Bible really uh, is made up of. So, you know, we have confessed, the Christian church has confessed the specific books of the Bible for hundreds of years. Our church has this confession that goes back about 500 years. Is that long enough for you? 
To be clear on what the church believes, how about go back another 500 years? Go back a 1,000 years? Go back 1,500 years and hear the testimony of the church in terms of what the Holy Scriptures really consist of. From the very beginning, the Word of God was received as the Word of God. It was recognized and confessed as such. We'll see how that happened when we consider uh, the next article of the Belgian Confession. But we ought not to be confused or uh, disturbed by the way the devil would try to uh, spread big question marks over the uh, over what the contents of Holy Scripture really is. Now we recognize that there are there are differences in the way these books are sometimes even named. Right in the older translation of uh, the Belgian Confession, it refers to First and Second Chronicles as sometimes called Paralipomenon. I don't suppose any of us ever heard First and Second Chronicles referred to as Paralipomenon in our day, unless we read it in the Belgian Confession. Or it talks about the first book of Ezra, suggesting that, yeah, well, the next book of Ezra would be Nehemiah. So there have been different ways of uh, of uh, describing these books. Um, the older version of the Belgian Confession refers to the greater or the lesser prophets. Our re- more recent translation speaks of the major prophets and the minor prophets, not to indicate which ones are more important than the other, but simply to you know, indicate the difference between the longer prophets and the shorter ones. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, they're longer than Daniel and Hosea, and so forth. That's the significance of that kind of language. And there's been differences among scholars about some of the details. Uh, how many Psalms are actually written by David? Jesus refers to uh, the Psalms as as David's. Authorship, And we recognize that David, indeed, is the author of the Psalms. That doesn't mean that we insist that David wrote every particular Psalm, and sometimes the authorship of the Psalms specifically is unknown, or it's discussed by scholars. In fact, our recent translation of the Belgian Confession uh, avoids the possible uh, problem or confusion over identifying 14 letters of Paul and including the book of Hebrews as a letter of Paul. Not that we necessarily object to the idea that Paul wrote the letter of Hebrews, but the letter of Hebrews itself is not uh, clear, obvious on that question, and there have been differences on that question. And the recent translation acknowledges that. It lists the 13 letters of Paul, which are obviously his, and then it refers to the letter to the Hebrews without specifying the authorship. doesn't mean that it necessarily wasn't Paul, but it leaves open the question of, whether it was Paul or not. But these differences don't change the fact of broad conviction and agreement down through the centuries as to which books are Holy Scripture. They've been confessed clearly as they are today. And that's an important part of our Christian witness and testimony when we meet with such confusion about what the Bible really consists of. Our Bible has been the Bible of the church, and we affirm that. We confess that. We believe that the scriptures cannot be broken. And that's part of our testimony. The identity of these books is clear. And we need to see also the books of scripture as a unity, a unity of the Old and the New Testaments. We might say that the Bible has two main parts. Sometimes they're referred to as uh, as two volumes or two books. And we've never known them that way, although sometimes uh, the New Testament is published 
uh, separately or by itself. The Gideons uh, often published the New Testament alone, certainly preferable to uh, print and publish the whole Bible together, lest people get the mistaken idea that they can really understand the New Testament without the Old, or they have the mistaken idea that the New Testament is somehow more inspired or more authoritative uh, than the Old, and that would be a mistake. But there are these two books, two volumes, equally inspired and authoritative. And again, it's an old heresy to reject one or the other. In the early centuries, there is the man uh, Marcion. He's also referred to in Article 9 with respect to the doctrine of the Trinity, who uh, rejected the Old Testament, who basically said that it's a, a, it's a book about a vengeful Jewish God, as opposed to the New Testament God of love. You know, there are still ideas like that floating around among professing Christians. And then there's the Anabaptists at the time of the Reformation, who rejected the Old Testament under the notion that it's occupied with uh, material concerns and it uh, is the letter of the law which kills, in contrast to the New Testament. And then in the 19th century and following, or before that as well, liberals, theological liberals who denied uh, supernatural, who denied the miraculous in various ways. Men like Adolf Harnock, who believed that the Old Testament should be rejected. And he thought that this would actually remove many objections that people have to the Christian faith. If we just had the New Testament, they wouldn't find so many offensive passages as are found in the Old Testament. Something which itself could be uh, debated, even if that were even a possibility to up for debate. But you see how throughout history there have been such attacks against the unity of the Scripture. But we need to understand that to reject the Old Testament is really to reject the New Testament as well. The most emphatic statements on the authority and the truth of God's word are New Testament statements indeed, but they're about the Old Testament. First of all, when Peter says that no prophecy is of private interpretation, but holy men spoke who were moved by the Holy Spirit, he's talking about the prophecy of Scripture, Old Testament Scripture, as inspired by God. Or think of 2 Timothy 3, 16, which says, All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, etc. And that's the very scripture that, that Timothy grew up with. The scriptures that are able to make you wise unto salvation. That's the Old Testament that Paul was referring to. Jesus is referring to the Old Testament when he says the scriptures cannot be broken. Jesus was referring to the Old Testament when he says, not one jot or tittle will pass away until all is fulfilled. Now, of course, those those uh, emphatic statements about the authority, the inspiration of Scripture, by extension, applies to all of Scripture. And that includes the New Testament, which is also referred to as Scripture in the New Testament. So there is a unity in terms of the the inspiration and the authority and the truth of God's Word. You deny the equal inspiration of both, and we really lose our ability to say, uh, the Bible tells me so, and that settles it. Properly understood, whether Old or New Testament, the Bible is absolutely authoritative and true. You see, it's in that light that uh, the church has always listened, always listened also to 
the warning that's given at the very end of this book in Revelation, where it says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. And yes, in this context, John is referring to the prophecy of this book that he uh, wrote by the direction of God, by the inspiration of the Spirit, the revelation of Jesus. But by extension, it's been understood to actually refer to the entire Scriptures because this language of adding to or taking away from the Word of God, that is language that's found in the Old Testament describing the authority of God's revelation. We must not take away anything from it or add to it or face serious consequences. Yes, we recognize that there are that there are differences between the Old and the New Testament, and they are significant. They're important to understand properly. There's differences in terms of the original language. The Old Testament was largely written in Hebrew. The New Testament is, was written in Greek. Differences as to uh, the original recipients of that revelation. The Old Testament was given to uh, the Old Covenant people of God, largely, whereas the New Testament... With the Old Testament is given to the entire church, all nations. So there are these, there are these, uh, differences, difference certainly in the form of worship, differences in a variety of ways, but those differences really are the difference between promise and fulfillment, the difference between, uh, preparation and accomplishment. But these two parts are united. And though there are some differences, they are characterized by a fundamental and essential unity. There is a unity in terms of their inspiration and in terms of their authority. There is a unity in their teaching of one God, not only the fact of one God, but the character of this one God, and even the triune nature and identity of this one God. Not taught as clearly in the Old Testament, but it's taught there. It's found there, though revealed more clearly in the New Testament. There is one covenant of grace. There is one way of God with his people. There is one way of salvation. You know how the New Testament authors teach and defend the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. They quote from Genesis. They quote from the Psalms. They quote from Habakkuk. They quote from the Old Testament to make clear that David, that Abraham, that believers from the very beginning were saved by faith, not by works. They believed God and it was accounted to them for righteousness. One way of salvation through Christ alone. One abiding way of living as God's people. The law of God. The law of God remains a perfect summary of what God requires of us in our relationship to Him and our relationship to one another. We're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus quotes the Old Testament when He summarizes the law in those terms. You might say every kind of ethical direction in the New Testament with respect to Christian living can be uh, clearly connected, clearly explained in the light of 
of uh, one or more of the Ten Commandments, because the Ten Commandments remain a perfect summary of that of the duties that we owe to God and to our neighbor as those who have been redeemed by grace and are called to show lives of thankfulness for such grace. So there is a unity of Old and New Testaments in this one book that we possess, this one rule. And this rule then finally is unaffected by any kind of assault against it. Our confession says of these uh, books, with which there can be no quarrel at all. Nothing can be alleged against them. Well, we might say, well, throughout the centuries, a lot of things have been alleged against them. But none of them can really assail. None of them can effectively undermine or deny or remove the absolute authority and truth of the Word of God. The devil and unbelievers and scoffers have tried to find fault with the Scripture, and they will continue to do that. Uh, but their their attacks have been compared to impotent hammer blows against an anvil. You know what an anvil is? It's like this big block of metal that's shaped perhaps with a with a, a, a roundish a cylindrical piece that comes to a point. We might visualize a, a blacksmith taking a rod of uh, a molten or heated iron from a furnace and putting it on that anvil and smashing it with a hammer and banging that piece of iron into some shape or other. And that heated piece of metal is uh, malleable. It, it changes by those hammer blows into the shape that this blacksmith wants it to be in. But the anvil is entirely unaffected by it. And attacks against the Scripture have been likened to someone taking that hammer and beating the anvil itself with it. But what happens is that in a short time, the hammers are broken and the anvil is unaffected by it. I think that's a good illustration of the attacks that the devil and unbelief has made against the Word of God down through the centuries. And some of the same old arguments are trotted out in every generation, some of which have been answered so thoroughly, so completely in times past. We can be thankful that God also raised up those in his church gifted uh, to explode these arguments that are raised and to defend the inspiration and the authority of Scripture. That doesn't mean that it convicts or convinces heretics once in a while, I suppose, but usually it serves maybe to establish Christians more and more in the faith. Sometimes it's pointless to argue much with people that reject the authority of God's Word because they're so deeply prejudiced. They don't want to hear your answers. They won't listen to them. They'll just continue to deny, maybe louder, with more contempt. But the reason why people reject the Word of God is not so much a matter of intellectual uh, brilliance or facts that disprove the authority of Scripture. No, it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of resistance to the Word of God. Because they don't like what it says. They don't want to submit their minds to it. They want to submit their lives to it. Such attacks do more to expose the faults and the prejudice and the willful ignorance of proud people than to chip away anything from the authority of the Bible. The Bible is unassailable. It's not able to be destroyed or overcome. In Isaiah chapter 40, we read that all flesh is grass and all its loveliness like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God 
stands forever. We heard a description of God's words in, in, uh, Psalm 12. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The words of God are preserved. Not one jot or tittle shall pass from the law till all is fulfilled. The, script, the scripture cannot be broken. That's what our Lord Jesus said there in uh, John chapter uh, 10, verse 35. The scripture cannot be abolished, rendered null and void in any way. And from this context in which Jesus spoke these words, well, I want to close by really pointing to the, the most critical point in application of uh, the teaching of God's word on this point. In the context here, Jesus was on trial, at least in the minds of the Jews. You can hear that in verse 24. The Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. As if Jesus had never made known clearly his identity as one sent from God. As if he had done not done the works of his Father, according to Scripture, giving clear unshakable un, uh, testimony as to his identity. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. These judges of Jesus were blind with prejudice, and they rejected his words. They rejected his witness. They denied that he did the works of the Father, and they rejected then the evidence, the proof of Jesus' oneness with the Father. The Jews took up stones to stone him, Jesus answered, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. There is the offense. And Jesus, in his answer, appeals to the Scripture. The Scripture they, they supposedly so highly regarded. And he said, Is it not written in your law? As if acknowledging their ownership and their high regard for the word of God. Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he, that is God, called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, it's kind of like a parenthetical statement which enforces the power of the argument that he brings before them. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Jesus is quoting from Psalm 82 where God addresses the judges, the great ones of the earth, earthly rulers, and exposes their covetousness and their injustice and warns them against judgment. I said, though you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. In other words, Jesus refers to a passage in which earthly rulers are referred to as gods. And Jesus, in effect, says, if God himself confers such dignity and significance to these people, in terms of their position as to call them gods, why do you take offense? Who are you to deny the sonship of the one whom the Father had set apart, sanctified, and sent into this world, who does the works of the Father? This is a call to faith, even to those who rejected him 
That's obvious as he continues. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. With all their claimed allegiance and respect for the word of God, they ought to hear what is the supreme focus and the messages of that word. And that is concerning God's Son, whom he sent into the world according to his promises. You see, brothers and sisters, uh, we can say all kinds of high and lofty things about the word of God. We can defend the canonicity of Scripture and the books that we confess to belong to the holy word of God. But if that confession doesn't lead us to the feet of the Savior and humble trust and recognition that he is the Son of God, one with God, whom God sent into the world to be the only Savior in whom we trust for our salvation, well, then our highfalutin confessions of Holy Scripture is rather empty, isn't it? Because we're like those Jews who had the Scriptures, which Jesus says, testify of me, and you will not come to me that you may have life. It was they rejected the great theme of Scripture, that is to make known the saving love of God in Jesus Christ, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let us treasure the word of God. Let us treasure the gospel of salvation. You see, because if we undermine the truth and authority of any aspect of God's word, that approach calls into a question everything with respect to God's word because we've made ourselves judges of Scripture rather than submitting ourselves to it in gratitude and faith. Amen.